Section 5 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19, Don Pacifico, Part 3. One association of profound melancholy clings to that great debate. The speech delivered by Sir Robert Peel was the last that was destined to come from his lips. The debate closed on the morning of Saturday, June 29th. It was nearly four o'clock when the division was taken, and Peel left the house as the sunlight was already beginning to stream into the corridors and lobbies. He went home to rest, but his sleep could not be long. He had to attend a meeting of the Royal Commissioners of the Great Industrial Exhibition at twelve, and the meeting was important. The site of the building had to be decided upon, and Prince Albert and the commissioners generally relied greatly on the influence of Sir Robert Peel to sustain them against the clamorous objection out of doors to the choice of a place in Hyde Park. Peel went to the meeting and undertook to assume the leading part in defending the decision of the commissioners before the House of Commons. He returned home for a short time after the meeting and then set out for a ride in the park. He called at Buckingham Palace and wrote his name in the Queen's visiting book. Then, as he was riding up Constitution Hill, he stopped to talk to a young lady, a friend of his, who was also riding. His horse suddenly shied and flung him off, and Peel, clinging to the bridle, the animal fell with its knees on his shoulders. The injuries which he received proved beyond all skill of surgery. He lingered, now conscious, now delirious with pain for two or three days, and he died about eleven o'clock on the night of July 2nd. Most of the members of his family and some of his dearest old friends and companions in political arms were beside him when he died. The tears of the Duke of Wellington in one House of Parliament and the eloquence of Mr. Gladstone in the other were expressions as fitting and adequate as might be of the universal feeling of the nation. There was no honor which Parliament and the country would not willingly have paid to the memory of Peel. Lord John Russell proposed with the sanction of the Crown that his remains should be buried with public honors, but Peel had distinctly declared in his will that he desired his remains to lie beside those of his father and mother in the family vault at Drayton Bassett. All that Parliament and the country could do, therefore, was to decree a monument to him in Westminster Abbey. The offer of a peerage was made to Lady Peel, but, as might perhaps have been expected, it was declined. Lady Peel declared that her desire was to hear no other name than that by which her husband had been known. She also explained that the express wish of her husband, recorded in his will, was that no member of his family should accept any title or other reward on account of any services Peel might have rendered to his country. No desire could have been more honorable to the statesman who had formed and expressed it, none certainly more in keeping with all that was known of the severely unselfish and unostentatious character of Sir Robert Peel. Yet there were persons found to misconstrue his meaning and to discover offense to the order of aristocracy in Peel's determination. A report went about that the great statesman's objection to the acceptance of a peerage by one of his family implied a disparagement of the order of peers, and was founded on feelings of contempt or hostility to the House of Lords. Mr. Goldburn, who was one of Peel's executors, 
easily explained Peel's meaning, if indeed it needed explanation to any reasonable mind. Peel was impressed with the conviction that it was better for a man to be the son of his own works, and he desired that his sons, if they were to bear titles and distinctions given them by the state, should win them by their own services and worth, and not simply put them on as an inheritance from their father. As regards himself, it may well be that he thought the name under which he had made his reputation became him better than any new title. He had not looked for reward of that kind, and might well prefer to mark the fact that he did not specially value such distinctions. Nor would it be any disparagement to the peerage, a thing which in the case of a man with Peel's opinions is utterly out of the question, to think that much of the dignity of a title depends on its long descent and its historic record, and that a fire new, specially invented title to a man already great is a disfigurement, or at least is a disguise rather than an adornment. When titles were abolished during the great French Revolution, Mirabeau complained of being called Citizen Riquetti in the official reports of the Assembly. With your Riquetti, he said angrily, you have puzzled all Europe for days. Europe knew Count Mirabeau, but was for some time bewildered by Citizen Riquetti. So Robert Peel may well have objected to a reversal of the process and to the bewildering of Europe by disguising a famous citizen in a new peerage. Peel's death, Lord Palmerston wrote to his brother a few days after, putting the remark at the close of a long letter about the recent victory of the government and the congratulations he had personally received, is a great calamity, and one that seems to have no adequate cause. He was a very bad and awkward rider, and his horse might have been sat by any better equestrian, but he seems somehow or other to have been entangled in the bridle, and to have pulled the horse to step or kneel upon him. The injury to the shoulder was severe but curable, that which killed him was a broken rib forced with great violence inwards into the lungs. The cause of Peel's death would certainly not have been adequate, as Lord Palmerston put it, if great men needed prodigious and portentous events to bring about their end. But the stumble of a horse has been found enough in other instances, too. Peel seemed destined for great things yet when he died. He was but in his sixty-third year. He was some years younger than Lord Palmerston, who may be said without exaggeration to have just achieved his first great success. Many circumstances were pointing to Peel as likely before long to be summoned again to the leadership of the government of the country. It is superfluous to say that his faculties as parliamentary orator or statesman were not showing any signs of decay. An English public man is not supposed to show signs of decaying faculties at sixty-two. The shying horse and perhaps the bad ridership settled the question of Peel's career between them. We have already endeavored to estimate that career and to do justice to Peel's great qualities. He was not a man of original genius, but he was one of the best administrators of other men's ideas that ever knew how and when to leave a party and to serve a country. He was never tried by the severe tests which tell whether a man is a statesman of the highest order. He was never tried as Cavour, for example, was tried by conditions which placed the national existence of his country in jeopardy. He had no such trials to encounter as were forced on Pitt. He was the minister of a country always peaceful, safe, and prosperous. 
but he was called upon at a trying moment to take a step on which assuredly much of the prosperity of the people and nearly all the hopes of his party along with his own personal reputation were imperiled he did not want courage to take the step and he had the judgment to take it at the right time he bore the reproaches of that which had been his party with dignity and composure he was undoubtedly as lord beaconsfield calls him a great member of parliament but he was surely also a great minister perhaps he needed only a profounder trial at the hands of fate to have earned the title of a great man to the same year belongs the close of another remarkable career on august twenty sixth eighteen fifty louis philippe lately king of the french died at clermont the guest of england few men in history had gone through greater reverses son of philippe egalite brought up in a sort of blending of luxury and scholastic self-denial under the contrasting influence of his father and his teacher madame de genlis a woman full at least of virtuous precept and rousseau-like profession he showed great force of character during the revolution he still regarded france as his country though she no longer gave a throne to any of his family he had fought like a brave young soldier at valmy and jemap egalite fils says carlyle speaking of the young man at valmy equality junior a light gallant field officer distinguished himself by intrepidity it is the same intrepid individual who now as louis philippe without the equality struggles under sad circumstances to be called king of the french for a season it is he who as carlyle also describes it saves his sister with such spirit and energy when madame de genlis with all her fine precepts would have left her behind to whatever danger behold the young princely brother struggling hitherward hastily calling bearing the princess in his arms hastily he has clutched the poor young lady up in her very nightgown nothing saved of her goods except the watch from the pillow with brotherly despair he flings her among the bandboxes into jeanlis chaise into jeanlis arms the brave young egalite has a most wild moral to look for but now only himself to carry through it the brave young egalite had indeed a wild time before him a wanderer an exile a fugitive a teacher in swiss and american schools bearing many and various names as he turned to many callings and saw many lands always perhaps keeping in mind that danton had laid his great hand upon his head and declared that the boy must one day be king of france then in the whirligig of time the opportunity that long might have seemed impossible came round at last and the soldier exile college teacher wanderer among american indian tribes resident of philadelphia and of bloomingdale in the new york suburbs is king of the french well had carlyle gauged his position after some years of reign when he described him as struggling under sad circumstances to be called king of the french for a season he ought to have been a great man he had had a great training all his promise as a man faded when his seeming success began to shine he had apparently learned nothing of adversity he was able to learn nothing of prosperity and greatness of all men whom his time had tried he ought best to have known one might think the vanity of human schemes and the futility of trying to uphold thrones on false principles 
he intrigued for power as if his previous experience had taught him that power once obtained was inalienable. He seemed at one time to have no real faith in anything but chicane. He made the fairest professions and did the meanest, falsest things. He talked to Queen Victoria in language that might have brought tears into a father's eyes, and he was all the time planning the detestable juggle of the Spanish marriages. He did not even seem to retain the courage of his youth. It went, apparently, with whatever of true unselfish principle he had when he was yet a young soldier of the Republic. He was like our own James II, who as a youth extorted the praise of the great Turenne for his bravery, and as a king earned the scorn of the world for his pusillanimous imbecility. Some people say that there remained a gleam of perverted principle in Louis-Philippe, which broke out just at the close, and unluckily for him exactly at the wrong time. It is asserted that he could have put down the movement of 1848 in the beginning with one decisive word. Certainly those who began that movement were as little prepared as he for its turning out a revolution. It is generally assumed that he halted and dallied and refused to give the word of command out of sheer weakness of mind and lack of courage, but the assumption according to some is unjust. Their theory is that Louis-Philippe at that moment of crisis was seized with a conscientious scruple and believed that having been called to power by the choice of the people, called to rule not as king of France but as king of the French, as king that is to say of the French people so long as they chose to have him, he was not authorized to maintain himself on that throne by force. The feeling would have been just and right if it were certain that the French people or any majority of the French people really wished him away and were prepared to welcome a republic. But it was hardly fair to those who set him on the throne to assume at once that he was bound to come down from it at the bidding of no matter whom, how few or how many, and without in some way trying conclusions to see if it were the voice of France that summoned him to descend, or only the outcry of a moment and a crowd. The scruple, if it existed, lost the throne, in which we are far from saying that France suffered any great loss. We are bound to say that Monsieur Thiers, who ought to have known, does not seem to have believed in the operation of any scruple of the kind, and ascribes the king's fall simply to blundering into bad advice but it would have been curiously illustrative of the odd contradictions of human nature, and especially curious as illustrating that one very odd and mixed nature, if Louis-Philippe had really felt such a scruple and yielded to it. He had carried out with full deliberation and in spite of all remonstrance schemes which tore asunder human lives, blighted human happiness, played at dice with the destinies of whole nations, and might have involved all Europe in war, and it does not seem that he ever felt one twinge of scruple or acknowledged one pang of remorse. His policy had been unutterably mean and selfish and deceitful. His very bourgeois virtues on which he was so much inclined to boast himself had been a sham, for he had carried out schemes which defied and flouted the first principles of human virtue, and made as light of the honor of woman as of the integrity of man. It would humor the irony of fate if he had sacrificed his crown to a scruple which a man of really high principle would well have felt justified in banishing from his mind. One is reminded of the daughter of Macklin, the famous actor, 
who having made her success on the stage by appearing constantly in pieces which compelled the most liberal display of form and limbs to all the house and all the town died of a slight injury to her knee which she allowed to grow mortal rather than permit any doctor to look at the suffering place in louis philippe's case too the scruple would show so oddly that even the sacrifice it entailed could scarcely make us regard it with respect he died in exile among us the clever unwise grand mean old man there was a great deal about him which made him respected in private life and when he had nothing to do with state intrigues and the foreign policy of courts he was much liked in england where for many years after his sons lived but there were englishmen who did not like him and did not readily forgive him one of these was lord palmerston lord palmerston wrote to his brother a few days after the death of louis philippe expressing his sentiments thereupon with the utmost directness the death of louis philippe he said delivers me from my most artful and inveterate enemy whose position gave him in many ways the power to injure me louis philippe always detested lord palmerston and according to thiers was constantly saying witty and spiteful things of the english minister which good-natured friends as constantly brought to palmerston's ears when lord palmerston did not feel exactly as a good christian ought to have felt he at least never pretended to any such feeling the same letter contains immediately after a reference to sir robert peel it too is characteristic though i am sorry for the death of peel from personal regard and because it is no doubt a great loss to the country yet so far as my own political position is concerned i do not think that he was ever disposed to do me any good turn a little while before prince albert writing to his friend baron stockmar had spoken of peel as having somewhat unduly favoured palmerston's foreign policy in the great pacifico debate or at least not having borne as severely as he might upon it and for a certainly not selfish reason he peel could not call the policy good and yet he did not wish to damage the ministry and this solely because he considered that a protectionist ministry succeeding them would be dangerous to the country and had quite determined not to take office himself but would the fact that his health no longer admitted of his doing so have been sufficient as time went on to make his followers and friends bear with patient resignation their own permanent exclusion from office i doubt it the prince might well doubt it if peel had lived it is all but certain that he would have had to take office it is curious however to notice how completely prince albert and lord palmerston are at odds in their way of estimating peel's political attitude before his death lord palmerston's quiet way of setting peel down as one who would never be disposed to do him a good turn is characteristic of the manner in which the foreign secretary went in for the game of politics palmerston was a man of kindly instincts and genial temperament he was much loved by his friends his feelings were always directing him toward a certain half-indolent benevolence but the game of politics was to him like the hunting field one cannot stop to help a friend out of a ditch or to lament over him if he is down and seriously injured for the hour the only thing is to keep on one's way in the political game lord palmerston was playing enemies were only obstacles and it would be absurd to pretend to be sorry when they were out of his path 
therefore there is no affectation of generous regret for Louis Philippe. Political rivals, even if private friends, are something like obstacles too. Palmerston is of opinion that Peel would never be disposed to do him a good turn, and therefore indulges in no sentimental regret for his death. He is a loss to the country, no doubt, and personally one is sorry for him, of course, and all that. Which done, God take King Edward to his mercy and leave the world for me to bustle in. The world certainly was more free henceforth for Lord Palmerston's active and unresting spirit to bustle in. End of section 5